Good morning, Soma. My name is Mark Brown, and I am a covenant member here at Soma and lead the missional community on 80th Street with um, some really great people. And it's really good to be here. We've lived in, in Indianapolis for two years, moved here in 2018. We live up in Nora and love to be part of this church. This morning, we're going to continue our series from the book of Philippians. And we're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare." They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've also thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrotitas, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God. Well, it is great to be with you this morning, and I really wanted to start this morning with a a brief confession. I've struggled a bit with a spiritual disease for the majority of my Christian life. The disease that I've struggled with is that I tend to reduce Christianity down to simply behavior modification. In other words, I've tended to reduce the majesty and beauty and wonder and excitement of Jesus down to how I behave, or called moralism. My disease goes further. I tended to value my personal happiness above all things. And finally, I tended to live out my behavior at times with no connection with a personal God. You know, it was Christian Smith, a sociologist at Notre Dame, who conducted research in the early 2000s, and he wanted to explore the religious behavior of young adults ages 13 to 17. This quantitative and qualitative research concluded a way to appro- the way that this group of people approaches re- religion and behavior in their life. And they simply, he described it this way in his book, Soul Searching. He called their approach to Christianity moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
The sad fact is that while I was not a teenager in the early 2000s, which should be obvious to you, that this really is a descriptor of probably three-quarters of my Christian life. It wasn't until about eight years ago that I learned that the solution to this problem. My guess is that some of you struggle with the same idea. You can tend to focus on external behavior. Especially with our four children, we focus on their behavior a lot as we raise them. And lastly, probably more accurately, is that right now, I hope, you're thinking about a personal God here this morning, Sunday, at church, that you're reflecting on Jesus. But what happens Monday morning? You see, there are times in my life that I've gone days without considering Jesus. So how do we combat this? Well, I think this passage we just read has a solution to our moralistic therapeutic deism. And here's a big idea that we're going to focus on this morning. Because Jesus works in us, we can work out our salvation in community for his glory. You see, the Philippian church brought such joy to Paul. This very personal letter also deals with concerns that Paul had. Like any church, problems arise. In this case, the Philippian church needed to be reminded of how to live out the gospel in their context. And I'm convinced that we need a reminder this morning in our context and how to live out the gospel in a modern-day world in Indianapolis, Indiana. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This verse really provides the purpose of verse 12. And for our context, I wanted to start with the purpose of working out our salvation. It begins with Jesus working in us. The tense of this verb, works, literally means that God is continually working. It's not just a one-time event. He continually works in us. The word work, we get the the English word energy from. This is the idea of working mightily or working effectively. This has the idea, as one scholar says, that God is the great energizer. He's the one who is working in you continually. See, Paul gives us the long view of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You see, we're all on a spiritual journey. Some are just starting the journey. Some are here just trying to figure this out. Some are even seasoned. But you've been learning and maybe trying to grow and trying to figure out how to live out your faith in this community. But at one point, there was a starting point. There was a beginning. We all need a starting point in our relationship with God. It's not something that happens automatically. You don't begin a relationship with God because you attend SOMA or because of your background or schooling or because of the family you came from. God has given each of us a will that we can trust Him or not trust Him, to trust Him to deal with our broken lives, our attempts to be God, our attempts to get life from the wrong things, all of our attempts even to change ourselves fall short. Early in my Christian journey, God transformed my life. I can remember in high school, I was a typical high school student who was a hedonist. Now, I didn't know what hedonism meant back then, but as I reflect on it, I was a hedonist, meaning I looked for as much pleasure as I could get. And I I pursued different activities for that. I pursued relationships with the opposite sex, uh, music, sports, academics. All these activities were pursuits where I tried as hard as I could to, to be satisfied. Well, if you've ever tried this, you realize that those accomplishments overpromise and underdeliver. 
and it really never satisfied me. And so we started attending this church, and it was at this church that I was told that going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Because I thought, because I was a church attendant, I was a Christian. But they said, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than staying in a garage makes you a car. You can stand in a garage, have deep car thoughts, but you will not become a car. At least I don't think so. No, you will not become a car. So I remember that it was explained to me that I needed to put my personal trust in Jesus Christ to actually begin this relationship with God, to to trust Him to deal with my sin, to deal with my brokenness. And so I did. My sophomore year of high school, I I literally went home. I remember closing the door of my room, and and I prayed a simple prayer, something like, Jesus, come into my life, pay for my sin, and make me the kind of person you want me to be. And, you know, I didn't hear the Hallelujah Chorus the moment that I prayed that prayer. But God began to transform me. And it's interesting, the first thing I saw God do as a basketball player, a pretty average basketball player, um, I had a pretty, let's just say, colorful language on the court. But I remember within days of making this decision, it stopped. And it wasn't like someone over my shoulder saying, hey, Mark, stop talking like that. It was really evidence of God transforming me from the inside out. And then throughout my high school career, as I, as I grew in my relationship with God, by the time I was a senior, people literally said, what has happened to you? And I said, well, I've been transformed because of Jesus. You see, Paul wants to remind the church at Philippi that Jesus is who works in them. God gives us both the motivation and ability to do His good pleasure. In verse 13, we do this for His good pleasure You know, from Genesis to Revelation, a story is unfolding, and a story that really has at the center of it the person of Jesus. For most of my life, I've approached my Christian faith with me at the center. I I was my hero. I was the hero of every story. I was a Christian hero, and so I had to make sure as a Christian hero that my behavior matched my hero status. Everything I did was about me. It wasn't about God's purposes. It was about my purposes and my agenda. I was deceived early on to thinking that life was all about me. See, Paul's reminding the church at Philippi that Jesus works in them for the purpose of His good pleasure, for His glory. He doesn't work in us exclusively for our good pleasure, but He wants to lift up the eyes of the Philippian church to Jesus in His work in us that moves us out of a self-centered life to a Christ-centered life. Now, I'm not sure how you've personally been experiencing the pandemic, but I think one of the results in my life is a justification to be really self-centered, to make life about me. I mean, I got to protect my family. I got to forage for food as I did early on in the pandemic. And, and, it, and it kind of enabled, I feel like, this, this stream of thought that it really is okay to be self-centered. But I believe as we're moving into a different phase of the pandemic, I believe God has been working in you and in me for His good pleasure. He wants to connect us to something He's been doing that's so much bigger, something more grander than we can ever imagine. You see, Jesus works in us so that we can work out our salvation. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. The therefore is therefore to, to show the context of the previous section. And the previous section is Christ obeying the Father. 
in carrying out his plan, even death on the cross. Christ was submitting to the Father. The Philippian Christians needed to obey, to follow Paul's instruction, which was drawn from Christ's example. And he says, my beloved, this entire letter is this affectionate letter from Paul to his friends. And he says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The word work literally is a command again to continually do something. Paul's saying, continually work out your salvation. It's important to know this is not in regards to your personal salvation. Paul's not telling the Philippian church that they can somehow save themselves. One scholar puts it this way. We say, the student worked out a problem in arithmetic. That is, he carried the problem to its ultimate conclusion. This is the way this word is used here. You see, Paul's telling the Philippians that the outworking of their faith is to occur in the community of believers not in isolation. This is a call to individual transformation in the context of community. They're not to work out their salvation to the ultimate end, which is to become like Christ, to be Christ-like. And they're to do this with fear and trembling. These words reminded them of their relationship to God and that they were to conduct their lives with seriousness and reverence due to God. You see, the solution to the problem, problems that the church at Philippi were experiencing the external opposition, the, the self-centeredness, the grumbling, the arguing was to work out their salvation, which is simply to say to become more like Jesus. So how do we work out our salvation in community for His glory? We pay attention to our words. Again, verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing or arguing. Paul uses another verb, do, which is a command to do something continually. In this verse, unfortunately for us, he says, do all all things, not some things, not the easy things, but he literally commands the Philippian church to continually not grumble or complain or argue. And he's reminding them of Israel's complaining. Remember after God rescued Israel from a life of slavery, recorded in the book of Exodus, God continually provides for them over and over again. And what happens? They forgot his provision. One scholar puts it this way, the Christians at Philippi must not complain against one another or God or engage in futile arguments with one another while involved in any of those activities in which their life together, their fellowship is expressed. Now, just a couple weeks ago, we sent our youngest son to the country of Montenegro for a year-long internship or missionary experience with crew working on a college campus. Now, Montenegro, you might not know where this is, is right across from Italy, across the Adriatic Sea, north of Albania. You might not know where Albania is, but you know where Italy is, across the Adriatic Sea. He's in Montenegro. And, you know, God provided all the support during the pandemic, which is incredible. But during the week of his departure, um, it became evident that he was going to leave. And so I sort of pushed pause in my life, and I was about everything I could do to spend time with my son. And so I did everything you want to do. We went out, we saw, I saw a movie for the first time in like six months. We went to a movie theater, I forget what that was like. Uh, we, would, we went out to eat, we took him to breakfast, we played disc golf. We did all these incredible things because it was like the last. And, and I remember um, during that time, I was starting to get a, getting, getting sad about the fact that I wouldn't see him for 12 months, at least in person. And then I started to get this spirit of like, I am really, like, why? It's sort of like this complaining spirit, like, I, I, why is he... This is, he, why does he have to leave? And then God reminded me that my son going to Montenegro actually is an answer to prayer. My wife and I prayed for all of our kids that he would raise them up and send them out as missionaries. And our two oldest are doing that in the marketplace. 
And then he's sending our youngest one out as a missionary to Montenegro. We had forgotten that God answered our prayer. How have you been doing remembering God in the midst of this crazy season? Why do you complain so much? My kids are driving me crazy again and again. I can't imagine. Why do you complain so much about that? Or what about my MC? Like, their MC seems better than mine. Or why can't my spouse read my mind and meet my needs all the time? You ever said that one over and over again? Or why do you have to look at the sun this morning? I complain about that at church. Like, why am I sitting in the parking lot looking at the sun every Sunday? I don't believe that Paul is telling the church to suck it up and start, stop grumbling and arguing. And I'm, I'm not saying to do that either. Rather, the context is to work out your salvation. Jesus is the one who works in and through us. He is a solution to your complaining spirits. Now, I want to walk you through how I do this to help you understand how Jesus doesn't want our moralism or external behaviorism, but he really wants to produce transformation from the inside out. So I want to do that. I want you to think right now of something you often complain about. This shall not be hard. Just think what comes to mind of what you complain about over and over again. I'm going to share one that I'm sure none of you have complained about. Actually, we all have. Is this, that I hate to have to wear a mask everywhere I go. I'm over it. I just complain about it. I know none of you do this. So Paul's not saying, suck it up, stop complaining. That's not how I deal with that. Um, I would suggest what, what, um, how, how to avoid moralism is simply to, to ask the question why, repeatedly, to get to the sin beneath the sin. So the question for me is, why am I complaining about wearing a mask? Well, I answer the question because I have a right to do what I want, is what I would say. Why, why that? Well, because it's inconvenient. Why is it inconvenient? Because no one has a right to tell me what to do. Why? Because I look for life living an autonomous life. Why? Because I'm in charge of my life. Why? Because I think I can get life from being the master of my life. Ultimately, when I complain, I'm shopping for life apart from God. Now, I'm not saying we should stop critical or stop engaging being critical or being engaging in robust, healthy arguments. I don't think Paul's saying that either. Rather, when I complain continually about something, I essentially am living a rather prideful life that promises life but is short-lived. The solution to my complaining is not to stop complaining. It sounds sort of funny. The solution is the person of Jesus. He created us to be under authority. In fact, the entire context of this passage is that Jesus was under the authority of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself. When I realize that Jesus has all that I need, I begin to cease to shop for satisfaction from him. See, because Jesus works in us, we can work out our salvation in community for his glory. Because of Jesus, I can put myself under authority. He's the source of life, not my presumed autonomous living. And my motivation to put myself under authority is the one who's behind the authority, Jesus. By the way, I do wear my mask all the time, just, just so you know that. So why does our application of the work of Jesus in our community make a difference? Because when we work on our salvation, we are consistent with our identity and the world around us notices. Look at verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. The two words, blameless and innocent, one scholar says, uh, when taken together and applied to the Philippians, signify that no one would be able to lay any accusation or blame against them because they were pure and sincere. 
The reference is thus to their present freedom from blame and their present innocence as they did all things without grumbling or arguments. And then children of God is not that they become children of God, but it stresses the idea of family resemblance, of sharing the nature of your parent, in this case, God. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Paul's using the same language that Moses used in Deuteronomy 32.5 to describe Israel who had gone astray. The church then provides the answer to this crooked and twisted and distorted living. And here's why it matters. Because among whom you shine as lights in the world. The word light means any light-bearing body. It was used of a torch, a lantern, even harbor beacons. Paul's words came as a challenge to change society. As light dispels darkness, so Christians are to dispel the darkness of evil and ignorance and unjustness that everywhere around them. Now, a couple weeks ago, I went on my second annual back camping, backpacking camping uh, trip with my three young adult sons. Now, last year, we went to Red River Gorge, and it was the worst experience ever. I, I, was, I was dying. I had a, a, back that didn't, uh, a pack that was not working, and we all overpacked. So, you know, we went up, so two weeks ago, we went to northern Michigan. I had a better pack, new pack. I trained, actually. And uh, we realized that we need to, to, to bring as little as possible because we're backpacking for 20 miles, stopping half, you know, every, a third of every, about seven, seven miles every day, camping, packing up, and going to the next. So it's, it's, you carry everything in your backpack, right? So that's a lot. So every ounce matters. And there's some really important um, items to have in your, ba- in your pack. So, for example, you need a, a water filtration device because you can't carry gallons of water. So, so when we go to the stream, we can drink water and not get sick. Our favorite tool uh, item this year was uh, my middle son brought a saw, that, uh, a portable saw. And you're like, what do you need a saw for? Well, this is a public place that we went at the different campsites that we had. So we had to forge for wood. And it was usually picked over, but there was always dead logs that we could cut pieces. It was incredible. So we had roaring fires. But the other item that was fascinating is, and I didn't know this until last year, is that we needed to bring, each, each of us had a headlamp. So if, I don't know if you're familiar with the headlamp, but it's, it's a, a lamp on your head. That's pretty obvious. I have the gift of putting out the obvious. But it's, you wear it on your head, and it stays there so you can do things with your hands. Now, northern Michigan, where we were, was pitch black. So when we're sitting around the campfire, you don't have it bright because you're talking to someone and they would see, it would just be blinding, but there's a function to bring, to have it be a red light. And so all of us would put our red light and it, apparently it saves the battery, but allows you to have conversations in the pitch black. Um, and so uh, while we're eating and having fun, we could actually have a conversation. Now, um, it just provided enough light so that it wasn't blinding. Paul is telling the church at Philippi that when they work out their salvation and community for his glory, they shine brightly. Not like a red light setting in my headlamp, but the brightest setting. And this bright light dispels distorted living in our culture. If we all wore headlamps at night here in the city, it would light up all around us and it would be obvious. When we work on our salvation and we don't complain and argue within our church, we appear as lights in the world, as though each of us are wearing a headlamp. You see, the reason why Jesus works in us, in community, is in order that we will be different in our culture that we live in, that we would be lights as Jesus works in our hearts and grows us and convinces us that He is a source of life, not 
constant complaining spirit, our world will take notice. So as we're living our life, people would say, what, what's up with Susie? She's different. She doesn't seem to complain all the time. And maybe it would open an opportunity to have a conversation with someone about the gospel. Because Jesus works in us, we can work out our salvation in community for His glory. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. One author says it this way, how do we shine like stars in the night? How do we live out this ongoing moral example as children who reflect the perfection of the Father? We grasp hold of the gospel. Only God's word can give us direction and power to let God do his work in our lives and keep us pure before him. You see, there is a solution to moralistic therapeutic deism. The solution is the person of Jesus. It's living out the gospel. You see, because Jesus works in us, we can work out our salvation in community for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and a chance to open up your word and to hear truths that um, you want us to apply to our lives. And I pray that we would be women and men who do not focus on behaviorism, but really focus on you. And as we focus on you, as we work at our salvation in our community, that we would appear as lights in our world for your glory and for your purpose. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.